What up, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 191 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I spoke with Yuki Yu from Energy Iceberg. Yuki is a Chinese national who took her knowledge of Chinese renewable energy and went off on her own. To all her peers, she was somebody who was deviating from what was socially acceptable. She had the perfect life. She had the perfect job. But for her, it was unfulfilling, not really what she wanted out of life. She wanted to push herself, test herself. And when she started learning about digital nomads, location independence, she decided to take her knowledge of Chinese renewable energy and put it into a newsletter. And with that, Energy Iceberg was born. Yuki writes a monthly newsletter that foreign investors pay a monthly fee to have access to so they can learn about the biggest projects that are going on in China that they could potentially invest in, or just how the Chinese renewable energy market is growing, the direction it's moving, and it helps them keep their finger on the climate of what's going on in China and the different opportunities that are occurring within the renewable energy market in China. It was a really cool story. I felt like a reporter from BBC World one of the shows I really enjoy watching when I'm on the road. It makes me feel connected to the world, what's going on, and it just gives me that sense of being on the road. In most hotel rooms around the world, you got BBC World always playing. It's something that just really, for some reason, makes me feel alive, and I felt like a reporter having this conversation with Yuki, who is just so eloquent in the way she described her decision-making in life, Energy Iceberg, and how she's growing it, and what it's like being a Chinese national as a digital nomad, especially in a time like this with COVID-19. It was such a fun conversation. Thank you, Yuki, for joining me. And for those of you who have heard episode 190 and me articulate what's been going on with me, what's been going on with Misfits and Rejects, I just want to say thank you to everybody who's reached out. It's meant the world to me, all 100 listeners out there who are committed to Misfits and Rejects who have been with me for a while. I've heard a lot from you, a lot of words of encouragement, a lot of kind, loving words of support. And for those of you who have made the effort to jump on a call with me to exchange a few emails Give me your feedback. That has been so powerful and so necessary for me to start moving the needle in the direction I want to take Misfits and Rejects. So thank you so much to everybody for taking the time to reach out. And it's not too late for anybody out there who's listening, who likes Misfits and Rejects, who likes the message of Misfits and Rejects, who's been listening a short time or a long time, who would like to give me some input, some feedback. I'd love to hear from you as well. Please hit me up at my email, chapin at misfitsandrejects.com. That's Chapin, C-H-A-P-I-N, at MisfitsAndRejects.com. And like I said in episode 190, I'm excited to grow Misfits and Rejects, take it to the level that I always thought it could be, which I'm not quite there yet, but I have no doubt with your help, I will get there. So thank you again, and please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Yuki Yu from Energy Iceberg. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm joined by Yuki Yu from Energy Iceberg. Yuki, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, Hello, ple- everyone. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. I'm so stoked. It's nice, as we talked a little bit pre-show, a, a cultural perspective that you know Misfits and Rejects audience doesn't get often um, because you are a Chinese national. Where were you born in China? Uh, I was born in the south of China. It's a small city in terms of, in, in Chinese sense, it's a small city. But I guess if you're placed in any European or U.S. city, it is a huge city with a lot of people, but relatively small in a Chinese term. Um, I born in the south, and we are Cantonese. We speak Cantonese. We speak Cantonese, and um, it's actually not that uh, far away from all this coronavirus uh, epidemic <laughs> from. So, when you say South China speaking Cantonese, my mind goes to Hong Kong. Are you you weren't born in Hong Kong? You were born in mainland China. I'm born in mainland China, and I uh, uh, my hometown is quite close to Hong Kong, indeed, uh, but not in Hong Kong. Okay. This is actually interesting. I just want to touch upon it for a second. We'd have to go in depth. I know you're in Hungary right now as we speak. Um, 
how are you received being a Chinese woman in Hungary? Are there any, is anybody treating you poorly? Um, I know, unfortunately, you know, Mr. Trump is calling it the China virus, which is, <laughs> um, and that's yeah. super unfortunate to me because I think that allows people who do have prejudices to treat Asian people in an inappropriate way. And my question to you is, is that happening to you in Europe or is everyone being very respectful? It never happens to me. Uh, but I think there are two dimensions for me to look at this. Uh, coming from as a Chinese person, I could understand some of the worry or even hatred uh, against a group of people who it's culturalized completely different and how we behave is completely different. Um, and our country is sort of, how do you call that, as a rising power in the region. So when we are just doing our own thing and then doesn't intervene with anybody's business and that's whatever you want to act, fine, right? It's your own business. But right now, given the whole globalization and everything's changing and how, how much influence we can have on the war um, and how different we are could make people feel not comfortable. And knowing that when I travel, I often take that perspective so I will make it very clear to show who I am and um, to show who I am to pay probably people I run into. And usually I don't uh, be greedy badly. Um, I, most of the people I meet is very friendly. I think when they see me, they also have a sense that in terms of how you speak English, how you approach certain subject, they feel that you are not the stereotype of Chinese when they read in the news, when they see in the TV. Uh, so that's the second dimension. Basically, I know that there is a stereotype about Chinese, and I myself see a lot of my countrymen behave in a certain way. Um, but I just try to generally, when I have the chance, show who I am. And if in some cases, I mean, people in the street and they don't know you, and because uh, for some reason they know me as a Chinese, actually it never really happened before. People can recognize I'm Chinese. Um, if that happens, that I would not take it very, very seriously because um, they are not aiming towards me. But to be honest, in Europe, I never run into any trouble. Even going to Airbnb, I would usually break it very clear. Hey, I'm coming from China, but I live in Thailand for a really long time. And I have been in Hungary for two months. So, But if you have any question, I could understand that. So um, just ask me any question if you have doubts. So that's how I usually start a conversation when I need to rent an Airbnb or something like that. So I never feel rejected in any way. That's really beautifully said. Thank you for that perspective because I think, yeah, going into cultures in the way that you do and you show who you are, you know, just as an individual person allows people, people and maybe their prejudices or their defense mechanisms to drop. And for me, the same being the ugly American, you know, as I travel the world and everyone <laughs> has their, their preconceived notions about me, the second they meet me, hear me speak, they can just see how my body language is, my attitude towards them and the world. They instantly show tons of kindness, respect, because I think everyone knows on a personal level that we don't all just fit into one category, like you just said. And that's that's really cool and interesting that you know you actually take the time to reach out to the Airbnbs to let them know that you're Chinese, but coming from Thailand. I mean, have you had anybody actually say like, or voice any concerns? No, uh, because that's my first messages. Like I send really, really long messages if, if I start an Airbnb conversation. Um, because in the back of my head is that I understand that people have worry. If you say nothing and then they see in your profile you're Chinese, um, I think if I'm an Airbnb host, I would be a bit nervous as well if you um, – come from certain region in China and come to my house. So I just break it very clear from the beginning. So I think that honesty and that openness also make people uh, much more relaxed. So I think they are most of the time the reply is like, we really appreciate your openness and detailed introduction. I think if you are open and not dodge the issue, 
um, I think usually that's not a big issue at all. Yeah, I think w- one thing you just mentioned that is unique and a lot of people don't do this is that that foresight, that anticipation, that consideration. Um, I think a lot of people don't have the same tact that you do, which I I feel like I do and I think is important for especially people in the entrepreneurial entre, entrepreneurial like sector. Like as you're as you're approaching uh, businesses and people and customers, if you can't anticipate maybe their needs, their wants, their concerns about you and what you're trying to offer them or sell them, you have a better chance of, I guess, ultimately getting what you want. Would you agree with that? For sure. Uh, I am currently developing a product that is providing uh, energy information about China to my audience, which are Uh, investors or companies around the world. So basically, none of my clients are Chinese. Everyone are either in US or in Europe. Um, And there is a lot of concern and why my approach uh, to addressing their concern is to basically talk with them first. Basically, before I even start to do develop my product, I will talk with them, see what they're concern about the Chinese market and see what they actually need before I even do anything. So I think the key things in entrepreneurship is that you need to understand what your client, what your customer, what your target audience wants. Sometimes uh, for us, when we are really focused on an area, we often feel that uh, what we are interested in is the most important thing in the world. Like, we like uh, to talk about certain subject and then we saying that everybody should know about that. But that's not really what your clients want to hear or what they really need to know. So I think from an entrepreneurship perspective, that the key thing is to understand what the clients demand. Even you, sometimes you feel, well, what the client one is pretty uh, uh, laughable or even stupid, but that's their demand. And that's more important than what you're saying is important. Yeah, agreed. How did you get into the energy sector? Um, and, and like, how, as a Chinese woman, were you motivated and found the inspiration to, to kind of, as we talked pre-show, break free from the stereotypes of what a woman should be doing in China to start your own company in China? I mean, that I've been to China. I've spent a few months in China. So I have a small understanding of cultural norms and mores. And as you described pre-show, you know, the three tenets of a successful human being in China is to have, you know, go to a good school, have a good job, and then have a family. And especially for the woman, having that family is, you know, important and a sign of success. So how did you kind of break free from that and go off and do your own thing? Uh. One of your questions is that how I get into the energy sector, um, I think how I get into the energy sector is actually not really breaking free from the norm. Quite the opposite, um, I study international politics. Uh, I have a bachelor, master, and then when I graduate, I was for a while an uh, investigative uh, journalist. Uh, for international politics. There is a natural link between the energy sector and international politics. And I have, I, as a Chinese um, girl, actually is pretty normal and pretty common actually among us to want to do something serious or something very successful. This is what, when we grow up, our parents, our whole society tell us that society is all about competition. You need to go to a great school. You need to have a great career. You need to go to work at most serious sector. Serious sector meaning finance, energy, um, IT nowadays. So those are things that people consider as serious and important. So I think on that direction uh, how I landed into the energy sector it's uh, really normal I went to a good school one of the best in China and then after that I by chances by my background I get into the energy sector um, when I when I work in the energy sector I actually really really love the topic uh, 
it made me feel that that's something I like to learn more about. And there's just so many experts on it. And there are so many details of the industry and so many politics and so many economics. So in any sense, it's very fundamental to the society. What I don't like about at that point in the job is that I'm working in a company, it's the second biggest power company in China. It is a big utility and it is a state-owned company. Um, I don't know uh, if you know that in China, majority of the economic and majority of the companies are state-owned. Um, Can you say that word again? What does that mean? State-owned. So owned by the state. Oh, state-owned. Got it. Okay, thank yeah. you. Yeah. So in China, state representing Beijing. Unlike in the United States, you have uh, Washington State, New York State, right? In China, we only have provinces, but uh, we only we, we have a collective uh, politics system. So the state representing Beijing. So Steyong is that Beijing uh, Ministry of Ministry of uh, Finance or uh, Ministry of Industry are owning certain companies, usually in their own sector. Like all the banks are owned by the government, owned by Beijing. And all the energy companies are owned by Beijing. Not all the energy companies, majority of the energy companies. So I work in a state-owned company, uh, a company owned by Beijing, uh, and it's the large, second largest utility company in China. So I remember when I uh, get into that company, every all of my relatives call me or call my mom and say, "Wow, she landed is such a dream job. Just don't quit, don't quit that job ever, because that is the best company you can get into in in that region. The region meaning the whole southern part of China. Uh, so it's a little bit like if you." probably working in ExxonMobil in, in the States. I'm not, I'm not sure if that's the same. Uh, but when I getting into that company, I love what I learn or the energy matters uh, or the politics or the subject matters of energy itself. But the company culture is pretty depressing. It's uh, really top down. Uh, for example, you need to go to work, and then after work, you maybe uh, you are obligated. It's your obligation to go drinking with your bosses. Um, when your boss call you, you need to show up all the time, and you need to uh, join a thousand different meetings, uh, waste of your time. And actually, a lot of the people in the works are. A lot of the posts are unnecessary. Like if they work in a, in organizations like that, it's a little bit like working in the government. Sometimes you can waste a lot of your time and not work, not working, but you will still be able to get your salary at the end of the month. Uh, so those type of job in China, we call it the iron ball jobs. Basically, once you get that job, you will get paid forever, <laughs> regardless of your performance. So in a system like that, it's sometimes not so important about what your performance is, what's your vision. Uh, it's more about like, how do you deal with your relationship in the office? So that is not my thing. And that type of culture is not that weird because it's sort of, it's a little bit like a reflection of some of the East Asian culture. We are in most of the East Asian culture, it's a top-down culture. It's a father-oriented, man-oriented society. And so I don't fit in in that culture. Um, so I, I, I feel terrible at that point. And so after a few years struggle, I leave. Uh, but I love energy. So I, I am doing business right now and I start a business uh, bootstrapping to provide energy information to people who wanted to understand the Chinese energy market. Um, so I'm having both. I can continuously continue to learn what I want to learn while I don't have to suffer from a system or a culture that I feel I don't fit in. Interesting. How did your parents feel about that when you decided to leave? Um, they 
they feel worry. Um, they are definitely worry. Uh, obviously, they would prefer me to have a stable job and a job that guarantees salary forever. But on the other hand, they know I struggle in this type of office politics. So I think in that sense, they understand me. And that's, I really appreciate my parents' support on that. But if you come to think about that, most people or like the social norm in China, they, are, they would, uh, people like me would not gain, gain their support from their parents. But if they grow up from a parents that constantly tell them to obey the authority and to obey the society's norm, they wouldn't have that type of problem I, I had. So it's because my parents' way of educating me that leads to me a little bit more rebellion than the other Chinese people. And that leads to me feel completely not fit in in that environment. So I would say that majority of the Chinese probably would not run into this type of issue. And for some reason, if they did run into that issue, they are probably not likely to gain support from their parents. But I'm lucky in the sense that my parents, although they're worried, but I think they support me 100%. Yeah, no, that's really cool to hear. And thank you for being so transparent about that. With Energy Iceberg, your company, is this your flagship business? Is this the first business that you've ever started on your own? Uh, before started uh, Energy Iceberg, I started up a consulting business called Abyss Research, but it offered the same services. It offered consultancy services, consulting services to a company or investor in Europe or in US or Australia to understand the Chinese energy market. But that is more of a one-on-one -on -one consultancy business. And one day I decided I don't like to do so many of this one-on-one uh, -on -one consultancy or research work because you need to spend a lot of time with your client, understand their specific demand and replying their email nonstop and cater to every small demand of them. So that's why I joined, when after I joined the DC, I decided to transform my model doing a really, really traditional consultancy model, transformed then into an information product. So basically, I decide what I write. I decide a information product about Chinese energy market. Actually, it's about clean energy, uh, renewable and energy storage. And I sell this report monthly to investors and companies. So I transformed the business model from a consultancy to a subscription-based information. So it is both the first or not the first. I, am, I don't know how to describe it. I think it's a process that I'm exploring. That journey never stopped, but um, the shape of it is changing a little bit along the way. No, that's cool. That's a good answer. The sub subscription-based model that you transitioned into, I think, is beautiful and brilliant. And how many subscribers do you have? How big is your audience? It currently is 500, and they're all really, really dedicated uh, audience. Uh, so they are not just some random person. They are really the companies and investors having a either investment in China or they affected by the Chinese supply chain heavily. I see. And then with the clean energy sector that you got into, what kind of information are they trying to understand about, I guess, the Chinese production of clean energy or the direction that China's going in energy? I mean, we all know about the global crisis of global warming um, and people are searching for answers in you know, solar, wind, title, wherever, and what kind of information are they specifically hoping to find through your reports? Uh, so first of all, the clean energy market, there's a lot of how they, 
depends on how you define clean energy. What I do mostly is renewable and energy storage. These are the two main areas. So in renewable, you have the wind, you have the solar, you have the biomass. That's the three main stream may, may form the renewable that currently commercially viable globally. And about energy storage is basically once you use renewable or other type of energy, produce power, you temporarily store those energy and the way you store the energy help them to transform to cleaner sources to replace oil and gas. So energy storage, we usually talk about battery. We usually talk about hydrogen uh, because you can utilize power to produce hydrogen. And when you use electricity to transform water into hydrogen, you're basically storing the electricity in the form of hydrogen. So that's the two main direction I focus on. But if you think about that, the global renewable market, there is no global renewable market. There is um, regional renewable market because every country's renewable market is segmented. And that is especially the case in China. China is the biggest country in the world in terms of how many capacity of wind, solar, maybe even biomass, I'm not sure. Wind and solar for sure. Wind and solar power capacity installed, meaning that how many power plants of wind and solar are installed. China is the number one in the world. But because China, we produce everything. We have the solar panel, we have the wind turbine, and we have a bunch of Beijing government-owned company to develop this project. We have a bunch of government-owned banks to finance this company. So in the sense that we don't need much of the international help. So we don't need so many investment from abroad. We don't need so much of the supply uh, of certain turbines, of solar panel. We do need some component here and there, for sure. That's a global supply chain. Um, but as a, as a result, China sound very, very close to the outside world. So in that sense, the investor or the companies, from the invest, investor's perspective, they are looking into investment opportunity to get into market, whether they can invest in a wind project and a solar project in China, or they can lend some money to the Chinese com- companies to build this project. From a company's perspective, if they are producing a particle, a component that can be used in a wind turbine and can be used in a solar panel, they are looking to get into the market as a supplier. Or they are developers, they want to develop a project themselves. So all these things uh, above, all the above we mentioned, they need information about Chinese politics, Chinese market information, Chinese local government's ideas, and what is the competitor, and what are the market. So all this information they will need to understand. But given how close is China in terms of information, and in terms of naturally energy sector is a really relatively close sector compared to industry like e-commerce or IT or these industries. Energy industry naturally are much more conventional or traditional. We are just, the people in the industry just like to hang out with ourselves. So in that sense, there is uh, not a lot of information out there. And if there are information out there, they are probably in Chinese. So there is also a huge language barrier. So for all this company and investor hoping to get into China, there are major barriers to get acquire any intelligence or, or information. So that is where I come in. Yeah. Do you have any competitors? Are there a lot of people doing this? Are you kind of the, the, the first to try this model? In terms of consultancy, like offering information as a consultant, there are a lot of uh, Chinese consultants do th- to do this type of services. So in some subsectors, 
such as wind specifically or solar specifically, there are huge international companies are my competitors. But in terms of what exactly I am targeting, um, not much at all. And in terms of who can offer a productized or information product, I don't know much uh, who are fo- both focused on China, on the subsectors that I'm focusing, and, and also it's an information product that probably zero at the moment. Good for you. How long does it take you to produce uh, this report monthly? Right now, uh, it's still in the development phase. So I'm currently having two versions of report and one, uh, there are two monthly report are like my marketing material sent to everyone and let them understand a little bit uh, what is the situation in China. That's pretty simple. So I do that probably I spend uh, two days a week to edit a little bit when I have some uh, virtual assistants uh, and research assistants to help to write about them. And I just add in them a little bit. And on all the other time, I'm still developing this um, information product that focuses on one niche group that will be focused on investors on a specific sector. And that will take uh, three days of my week. So actually I'm working quite hard in a disease standard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know everyone's always talking about the four hour work week in the DC. And I mean, as we both know, that's not the reality when you're an entrepreneur actually trying to grow something of substance. Do you, is this a viable business at this point? Are you profiting from this or at least able to pay yourself a little bit? At the moment, my the business itself doesn't bring me any money because the, I am still in the phase of uh, attracting the audience and get as much as audience as possible. Mm-hmm. Because the plan is to first get all the relevant audience on board and then sell off the information product. And I achieved the first step pretty well that I see that how my subscriber is building, uh, growing up. So I'm in the, in the phase of starting the second phase of talking with all this audience, feel interested. I call with them, uh, I now having probably one course a day and to discuss what the product they want. And then the next phase will be to develop their project and get them on board. So at this point, the business itself do not bring me any money, the information product business. But on the other hand, I'm still doing the research on the side. Like every once in a while, I have a one-on-one research on the industry. So that is what the cash is supporting me to transition into the information product business. Mm, Okay, yeah, I see now. That makes sense. That's really cool. And then, so then that cash flow that you do have from the one-on-ones is helping you, you know, live in Hungary at the moment and continue your travels. Are you passionate about traveling? Is that why you kind of wanted to create a a business like this so you can kind of live and move around the world as you please? Surprisingly, not so much because before my boyfriend and I, he's also an entrepreneur. He's also a location independent entrepreneur. We were living in Beijing. And at that point, we heard about this concept about location independent entrepreneurship. And we are pretty thrilled about that. We say that we, we got it design our business and our life in a way that we can be independent. And once we achieve that, because both of our business now design a way that we can do that. And therefore, we leave Beijing and we try the entry level of traveling city, which is Chiang Mai of uh, Thailand. Because that city is everything is set up. You can just fly into Chiang Mai with uh, one suitcase you spend two days, look for an apartment, and then you are there. You don't need to buy anything because the apartment is so much apartment designed for entrepreneur or digital nomad like us. We can, you can just plug in anytime. And that's why we decided to try Chiang Mai. And then once we get into Chiang Mai, we are looking for other uh, location that may be interesting. So we look into... Um, Berlin, Barcelona, Lisbon, and Malaysia. 
Netherlands a little bit, uh, and now in Hungary and before in Czech Republic. So the idea now for travel is that whether I can live in this place. So those whole concepts change a little bit before you always feel that, oh, I travel and I like this place. Mm, could I stay here? But now when we decide to travel a place that we bring in the purpose to check whether we like to stay there for at least six months or a year. So I feel actually in this process make me realize that I don't, I'm not like doing this type of lifestyle because I love travel so much. I want to see different country, but more like I like to have the freedom. If I want to go somewhere, I can. Uh, but we do look into different locations around the world to see what are the next steps. What kind of criteria do you have as a, as a couple for the perfect sort of location to maybe plant some roots, have a, a stationary apartment that you can always kind of come back to? Um, do you have any? Of course, one thing to consider is that um, life quality compared to how much money you, you are willing to spend. So in that sense, Chiang Mai is one of the best place. And second criteria for us is the air quality. Maybe for you and, and for your American audience, it's not really a thing. But for someone who come from living in Beijing for a while, that how clean the air or how polluted, it's a big issue. So that's the second thing, whether that place have a huge pollution issue. And the third is that whether that city had a certain vibe that motivate us to grow, to develop, and to learn. So in that sense, probably we definitely need a city with um, a decent amount of co-working space because both of us like to work in an office. And especially in a co-working space, you are more, most likely to find someone with similar background, a similar um, vibe that you can hang out with. So that's very important and whether you can, that city allow you to do the sports uh, you like. Right now we are practicing Muay Thai, the Thai martial arts. Mm -hmm. So now we are actually taking that into account. So I, I guess along the way you are adding more stuff because your criteria is getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> no doubt. How long have you been on the road, like kind of searching and being a digital nomad for? I think we have been searched on and off. We're not really active, actively searching, but uh, on and off when we travel, we take a look, we go to different locations to check whether we like it. Uh, on and off, we do it at least four or five years. Wow. Very cool. And yeah, I'm interested. I, so you and your boyfriend both enjoy doing Muay Thai together? Initially, me. Uh, initially, it's me that really, really want to do Muay Thai. Um, before moving to Thailand, I, I was training in a cross local CrossFit gym. So I really love doing CrossFit. But then once I, so I, I think I always love to do this type of, uh, crazy ex exercise, this type of thing. So initially when we moved to Thailand, um, given that I leave my local CrossFit gym, cro CrossFit box, actually. So I decided to do something else. At that point, it's Muay Thai. But then along the way, my boyfriend also joined. So it becomes sort of part of the routine in our life. It's so important that at the moment, when we actually, when we just arrived Budapest, it was this February. The first things we do is to search, do we have a co-working space in Budapest and which co-working space we want to work before we even search for a house. And then we search whether there is a Muay Thai or a kickboxing gym that we can join. And then once we decide about these two location, and then we try to look for a house that is convenient for these two location. And that's our routine wherever we go. And we actually joined one Muay Thai class in Budapest. But that, well, after one class, and then uh, Hungary announced the state of emergency due to the coronavirus, and then we only have one class. So since then, we are trying to spar at home between me and him. <laughs> so we call it public uh, violence. <laughs> That's so between, funny. Yeah. 
Um, has there, have you come across a city or place that is you you intuitively feel is kind of ticking all those boxes? I mean, just listening to you you speak, it sounds like Chiang Mai comes or Thailand comes pretty close because you like the Muay Thai. Air quality is not great, but there's months of the year where it's pretty decent. Would you say Thailand's the place that kind of ticks all those boxes you suggested earlier, or have you found other places that you're you're leaning towards and you kind of like? We never found the perfect place. We never found a place that we say click all the boxes. Uh, we along the way we decide we we compare and we compare so often. The conclusion is often that we can stay in this city, but why do I need to stay in this city? Because I can also stay in. Prague, I can also stay in Budapest, but there is not one reason I must stay here. I think that's that's one of the, how do you say, curse or not really a curse, like a sweet burden when you are being too free to choose. When you have a fixed job, when you have a fixed, uh, when you have a rela- normal relationship, probably you require your, your partner have a fixed job as well. Then in that case that you are sort of fixated in a city, it's hard to change. But once you are fully free, and then you will have a little bit of the sweet burden to decide for yourself. And it's a little bit like swimming in the ocean. And all of a sudden, you need you are the only one who find the direction for yourself. And it, that's the same when we are looking for a city. There is really no one city click all the boxes. Like Chiang Mai is great. It had a little bit of air pollution issue, especially every three months, uh, every year. But Chiang Mai for us is a little bit too quiet and too village alike. There is, it lacks certain type of city vibe that we are used to. So in that case, we're looking at for the city vibe or the metropolis vibe. Maybe you should call it that way. And therefore, we are also trying to see if Kuala Lumpur, KL, um, is an option. But right now, we are stranded in Europe and not able to check yet. So next step, I think once we finish in Budapest and when the global travel ban is a little bit lifted, we're probably going to check out Kuala Lumpur because we feel Kuala Lumpur is quite... A big city, and we like big city. That's one other thing. It's big city, of course, it will bring some pollution, but on the same time, it's a trade off. I think the problem no city that can click all the boxes is because when you look for one thing, they will have other negative things. They, when you look for a big city, you may have a little bit of air pollution here and there. When you have a when you look for easy uh, transportation, you wouldn't found it in a big city like Kuala Lumpur or Beijing or Shanghai or Hong Kong. You always have traffic jam. Um, so there was there is often a trade off, and then you just need to look for a place that work as the most balanced option for you. Second thing is that you need to find a reason and. A connection really takes a part of deciding where to stay in a longer term. What does your boyfriend do for a living? He's an entrepreneur that uh, provides financial consultancy to clients, especially e-commerce and SaaS company and consultancy agent agencies as well. Uh, but right now he's also transforming from a one-on-one services business in into productized services, basically offering financial reporting services to consultancy and I see. Yeah, I just have a few more questions. Um, one thing that intrigued me pre-show that we you mentioned is your love of heavy metal, and I wanted to used kind of, to be <laughs> used to be not anymore. Not anymore. Now I'm like hardcore techno fan. Okay, so yeah, that was I'm leading to my next question, which is when you kind of are seeking these kind of metropolitan big cities, like are you looking for kind of dance scenes and places that you can go listen to these types of musics that you love? And is is your boyfriend enjoying the same type of music as you? 
Yeah, we we definitely love uh, electronic music and well, techno specifically. So some people when they hear electronic music, they have different ideas. So like they, they would say trance is not uh, is not good or techno is not electronic EDM is different something like that. But anyway, we love uh, techno. We met each other sort of due to a similar passion about the dancing and the electronic music. So therefore, when we look for big city and when we look for a city to live, the type of vibe and the music scene and dancing is indeed very important. That is the reason that when the first time when we traveled to Berlin, we really, really love the city because it's a place that when you walk on the street, you will hear DJs are playing great techno on the street, uh, out in the open. And then you see a small group of people gathering, dancing. And that type of freedom and that type of um, vibe really attract us. And on the same time, you see, you're now seeing more and more East European city like Budapest, like Prague. I heard about um, in Ukraine as well that there are more cities are booming with techno and electronic scenes. So that is something that we indeed look into. That's cool. Do you have um, aspirations to ever like uh, make that kind of music? I mean, do you have a mixing board and a desire to ever make techno music? No, never. <laughs> I think we have to pick our battle. <laughs> so never. Yeah. When I was in university, though, I was a metal fan, as you mentioned. At that point, my ambition is to become a music journalist. Uh Think about how odd that was. Uh, I remember my inspiration is a novel from Murakami. Murakami is a Japanese writer, Japanese novelist. Uh, one of his books, main character's job is uh, a jazz bar owner. And then at that point, I was thinking about that. I was like, hey, Maybe I, when I finish my degree, my master degree of international politics, I should continue to have a PhD. And then after the PhD, I should just open a bar of music like heavy metal and things like that. And that is just should be what I do. Because at that point, I really love music so much. But at that point, I think if I need to do anything about music, it would be either open a bar or become a music critic. Because I don't believe that I can create music, but I do have the ear for that, I, I think. Yeah. You kinda, you've opened up one more box in my brain. I'd love to kind of talk to you a little bit more about <laughs> if, you, if you have the time. It's not related to music. It's more related to your passion for journalism and, and the state of journalism throughout the world. Um, it's come up for me in many other past episodes as, you know, I come back and forth to America and go out and see other cultures. And I don't understand all the news based on language barriers, but coming back to America, it seems that, you know, investigative journalism who are journalists who are really trying to get to the root of cause effect, you know, not being subjective is gone. Like, I don't think that exists in America anymore. And my question to you is, does it exist in China? Like, can you, as an investigative journalist, really seek the truth and then express it through your journalism? Or are you always having to kind of manipulate the story a little bit for your the party that you um, share the same ideals with? I think I agree with you that the absolute objective of journalism never uh, – it's – could not find a place in the world. But I would like to add that it would be a bit naive to think that there is absolute objective in journalism because journalists, investigate journalists who train to be a little bit more nuanced, a little bit neutral on their standpoint, even them have a point of view. And we are heading to a society and in the world that the world politics are getting more polarized which means that politicians can be more polarized and which also, can, which also mean that journalists have their strong opinions and stronger opinions nowadays. Uh, with that said, the whole journalism scenes in China in, and 
some East Asian countries and in U.S., I think it's very different. What I can comment on is that I think I'm pretty lucky that I was working in the energy sector. I was reporting about energy. So I never have to look into social matters, policy matters. So in that, what I am looking into, I'm pretty lucky that I feel I have quite some freedom to explore what I want to explore. Um, so in what I have experienced, I am relatively like a dance with a shackle. Uh, <laughs> I even you, I once even, I think one of my highlights in my investigation, investigating journalism journey is that I fly to Myanmar, the northern Myanmar at that point is at war. And I went here to investigate a hydropower project uh, in the country. So that is really a turning point in my life to first experience Burma or Myanmar, which is in, at that point in most people's eyes, it's a not open society and the politics seems weird and it sounds even like the most dangerous place, one of the most dangerous places in the world. But how the reality really shocked me or how nice and how peaceful in a, on the street. You can f even feel that that's the safest country in the world. But of course, when you get into the war area and when you get into there is a big energy project, the situation become very different. And that really shaped how I see things. And the second thing is that project Someone invests in that project and try to build a hydropower dam, but then in the end, the whole project gets suspended. And I talk with every side. I talk with the people against uh, the project. I talk with the people who invest the project. And I do feel that every part are sincerely believing something very, very different. The one who invests this project feel we truly want to bring uh, electricity to that area or economic perspective, uh, ex economic development. And the one who against it is that we don't want to move, we just want to live here. And we don't want to relocate to uh, another village, even though that village maybe is a newer house, but I don't like that house, right? So you will see that um, how everybody have their own perspective and how everybody have different value. And when those different values are so hard to um, understand each other. So that journalism itself could become difficult. But I think journalists around the world, our training is to try to bring the story from different perspective. But doesn't mean that um, all of us can express or can think in a way that we always know that there are different perspectives because we are also human as well. Uh, that means two things. That means that we have our own feeling, our own judgment that will push us more inclined to express or to express, to show that the value that we feel make, making sense. So that is one perspective. Second perspective is that we are, we're human. And therefore, when you try to understand a matters, you cannot just discover the whole truth at once. Sometimes it's a process of exploring the truth. It's a, exploring the truth is a process. So regarding about Chinese reporting, so what I can say, what I can comment on is that from what I experienced, I am lucky enough to choose energy as the area that I report. I think that's one of the most beautiful poetic things that's ever been said on Misfits and Rejects. Thank you for that. And I think that gives the audience a perspective on, I think, how many people throughout the world struggle with uh, being heard in a way that they want to be heard because they're just doing their best and they're coming from a belief system that is strong within themselves that they're trying to articulate, which has a completely opposite effect on somebody who believes something different. So I think what you just said gives a lot of perspective into the struggle that 
we all face as we're trying to be heard in all the noise that's going on right now in the world. I agree. One more question for you before I let you go. So actually, too, I just want to make one statement. So Energy Iceberg is is your company in which you you write a, a monthly report to potential investors and give give them perspective on the chi- clean energy in China, and they pay a monthly subscription for that's that's the model. That's where you're going. That's the direction. And at this point, there's about five, you have about 500 interested parties. Is that correct? Yes. That's amazing. I wish you the best of luck in that. I think it's a beautiful model, and it sounds like you're passionate about it, and you're going to do some amazing things as that continues to develop. My last question for you, I'd like to ask every single guest who comes on the show, if you could speak to one audience member about or try to inspire them. If they're thinking about starting their own business, they want to become a digital nomad, they want to take that first trip, but they're a little bit hesitant, they're a little bit nervous, can you maybe inspire them or encourage them in some way to help them take that first step? Let me think. I think I would say like this. Actually, yesterday I have a conversation with my mom. I am really far away from home. And I told my mom that I feel really, really stressed. Um, I feel that entrepreneurship is a journey almost like our Buddhism belief. It's a, it's a Buddhism training that... When you're having a job just by yourself, you only need to be good at one expert. You only need to be good at maybe talking, maybe selling one thing. And at that point, you have a lot of complaint about how other people are being incompetent and how the society is not moving, etc. And then once you do entrepreneurship and you're doing your business and you found that you need, you have so many perspectives, you need to improve. And that made me realize that entrepreneurship, it is a type of religious, even Buddhism training to make yourself better, make yourself grow all the time. Because you have to face all your weakness and you have to face all your problems and address them, at least to an acceptable level. So maybe what I said is not so much of inspiration, uh, but more as a warning, but maybe in a encouraging way don't expect that quitting a fixed job and getting into digital nomad or entrepreneurship therefore equals to a rosy future that you are happily travel around the world no you will face a lot of problem a lot of problems that you don't have to deal with and you don't have to face but if you choose this path at least you will become definitely better yourself because you just have to well said, Yuki. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you. Thanks. I hope that at least have make some sense. <laughs> awesome, Yuki. Thank you so much for your time. What a fun conversation. Again, just another great example of somebody who doesn't realize they have maybe a skill set that they can take online. And then once you start learning about digital nomads and being a location independent worker, remote worker, you start to realize like, oh, maybe I do have some of these skill sets that I could create my own company like Energy Iceberg, uh, where I write a newsletter every month and charge for it. Like, what a great idea. Hats off to you. I think that's a brilliant business model. I have no doubt that it will grow and continue to be successful. I wish you all the best. And again, for anybody listening right now who would like to participate in helping me grow Misfits and Rejects, give me some feedback about Misfits and Rejects, the episodes they like, the episodes they'd like me to continue to bring to the podcast. I'm all ears. Looking forward to hearing from you. Please reach out, Chapin, C-H-A-P-I-N, at MisfitsandRejects.com. A lot of people have been reaching out via social media, Facebook, Instagram. I am Misfits and Rejects on Instagram. I am Chapin Cruder on Facebook. Any way you feel like reaching out, I'm more than happy to receive a note from you. Thank you so much to everybody who already has. I'm looking forward to the future of Misfits and Rejects, making this something big, something even more powerful, delivering value to you every single week that you're excited to share with your friends and family that you know is going to make a difference in somebody's life. That's my goal. Thank you again. I think you all are so very beautiful. I'll see you next week's episode. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a 
different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it, it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.